Twenty years ago, Fido the dog lived out in the backyard. Now he lives in the house and sleeps in a bed. And so we ask, how did the United States become a pet nation? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host, Michael Olson. And now, get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Well, hello out there. You are tuned into the 1297th edition of the Food Chain Radio Show. Or hey, perhaps you're among our friends way up there in Toronto who are tuned into the Food Chain Podcast at MetroFarm.com. Whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome aboard. I am Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Folks, on a recent flight from New Orleans, my wife pointed to four companion animals that were visible from where we were seated. And when one is buckled into a seat on an airplane, one's vision is pretty limited. There must have been more animals aboard that flight. Holy smokes! Our pets are now flying with us. You know, in the past two decades, the population of pets in the United States has nearly doubled. During this same period of time, the birth rate of the nation's human population has been in decline, leading to one of the lowest birth rates on record and heading for the lowest birth rate ever. Given the numbers, it is evident that the United States has given itself over to becoming a pet nation. In fact, almost two-thirds of Americans now own a pet, and we treat those pets as if they were our children. We turn our homes and yards over to them, feed them the best foods money can buy, take them to pet doctors who cost a fortune, build parks for them, and yes, we even fly with them now. <laughs> that so many Americans are now owned by their pets leads us to ask, how did the United States become a pet nation? Here to help us find the answer, we have Mark Cushing, who is founder and CEO of Animal Policy Group and the author of Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. Mark, uh, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the food chain. Good morning. Now, Good morning for great conversation. Yeah. Now, surely, Mark, you have a pet. Well, we have more than one pet. We have a puppy, uh, a papillon, a smaller dog named Louie, and then we have two Bengal kittens, which are Olympic athletes masquerading as cats. Uh-huh. And which, yes. which pet is the boss? Well, uh, were you to interview, the, uh, all three would say they are, of course. Uh, cats, as you know, treat people as staff. Dogs treat us as their owners and, and pet parents. Louie's kind of an officer, Louie, inspector general, making sure the cats don't have too much fun and don't threaten his relationship with my wife. Um, but it's it's a daily contest, uh, and, and I wouldn't bet any given day on, on which pet. And as such, they probably keep you pretty entertained, don't they? They are <coughs> a constant source of belly laughs, not just chuckles or, or modest humor, but <coughs> excuse me, but just very entertaining. So can't complain. Well, good. Can't complain. Well, Mark Cushing, how did you become so involved in pets? You're the CEO of the Animal Policy Group and the author of Pet Nation. Did, they, did the pets lead you into becoming the pet person that you are, or was it the other no, way around? It, it, I can't say that, and uh, 
I hope your audience won't be mad at me, but I'm I'm a lawyer and uh, uh, had a successful career as a, as a courtroom attorney, a, a trial lawyer, um, as well as as a lobbyist and, and and political advisor. I was practicing in an international law firm in Washington D.C. back in 2005. I was actually you mentioned Toronto. Uh, most of my clients were Canadian-based, as it turned out, and I was at the airport in Ottawa, Canada's capital, getting ready to fly back to D.C., and I got a phone call from what is still the largest veterinary practice group in the world. It's called Banfield Pet Hospitals. They're owned by Mars, Inc., and uh, they were leading a coalition <clears throat> trying to address an issue of microchipping, which is one way you can find out the identity of a pet if it ever gets lost and we ended up solving or significantly advancing the situation for them <clears throat> through some activity in the u.s congress in 2006 and i figured uh michael i was i'd had a good run it was fun i enjoyed it well paid and then my phone kept ringing to do more things for members of the coalition and uh, all of a sudden Two years later, I noticed I had a full-time practice. I turned it into what I call the Animal Policy Group, which is now my own independently from my law firm. And I've been busy ever since, having a great time. It's, uh, I handle regulatory, legal, political issues, strategic issues across the pet specter, veterinary, pharmaceutical, pet food. I do a lot of work with vet colleges um, and, and industry coalitions I've formed. So it's, I'm a group of nine people now, spread all over the western U.S. as, well, as far east as Portland, Maine. Well, you know, most of us, prob most of us pet owners probably do not um, understand the scope of the industry, which is something we hope to get to down the line here. But from what you say, it, it sounds like it's an extraordinary industry in itself. And you're also the author of Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. Tell us a little bit about the book. Give us a good thumbnail. Happy to. And it was, uh, I was approached by an agent who they wanted literally an inside story. And it was, it's, it's a story over a generation, so roughly about 25 years of, of the wholesale transformation of our relationship to pets in American culture and society and in our homes. But as much as that, the impact of pets on American culture and society, and you, you used a great example uh, in your introduction, uh, flying on a plane, which I'm about to do in two hours. Um, and yes, I'll certainly see a number of, of dogs usually on a plane. Pets are everywhere now. And, and what's happened is pets, it, they were a sideshow. They were accessories for most people. There are exceptions. But if you go back 30 years when baby boomers were kids or, or teenagers, um, pets were outside much of the time, both cats and dogs. And then they came inside and you had a conversion of two facts. You had people experiencing pets and they up front, up close, didn't even know it, but they were getting the human animal bond, big, big doses of that every day. And what's that? Well, our oxytocin level in our brain goes up when we engage with pets. That's been the subject of many, many studies. And, and there's no doubting, doubting it anymore. And our cortisol level goes down. Well, cortisol is stress and tension and anxiety, and oxytocin is relaxation and calm and, and basically the state of happiness. 
So, so you physically and mentally feel better without even knowing why it's happening. At the same time, uh, what I remember so well, the, the uh, document in this book, American media, both movies, television shows, commercials, sort of figured out there was something going on. And you put a dog in a show, you build a show around <laughs> dog, you do a, com- you do a commercial, my favorite. And of course, Lassie was a great example, the, the most amazing dog in the world who's uh, the novelist that created Lassie character was a friend of Charles Dickens. So she wasn't a product of anything 25 years ago. She lived back in the 1800s. But uh, um, the, the Subaru and Nissan ads are my favorite example. And I'm sure a lot of the audience can remember these. <coughs> All of a sudden, you'd watch an ad of a Subaru or Nissan going down a California coastal highway, beautiful vista, ocean to the right, steep drop, wind blowing, window down, and a golden retriever in the passenger seat. And that's the entire commercial. And I'm sure the CEOs of those companies saw these ads ahead of time and said, well, when are you going to finish the ad? You didn't tell me anything about the car. And their answer was, uh, well, actually, that's the point. We want to associate a dog with our brand, smiling. That's it. And and, and sales took off, and, and it, it just began to prove this thesis that association with pets, in particular dogs in the public arena, seem to make things better. And that, that convergence led the children of, of baby boomers, in some cases Gen X, but mainly millennials, and now grandkids, uh, Gen Zs, to acquire pets early in life. You know, not before they left home, but early in life. And that's the surge you saw in numbers, where millennials and Gen Zs now own 60% of the uh, pets in this country. I'm flying up to Portland this morning. Uh, my four daughters live in Portland. And uh, let me, if I counted it, I think those four represent at least eight pets. And, and they're typical. They're not. They're not exceptional. They are exceptional kids, but they're not exceptional for their pet ownership. So, that's kind of the thesis here. And then, what you see, and everybody sees daily, is that dog owners, in particular, kind of marched out the front door with their dogs and are taking their dogs everywhere in America now. Hospitals that used to never tolerate a dog in a hallway, a nurse would be racing down to make sure that dog was outside. Now they have. You can't. <clears throat> you can't find a hospital. <clears throat> that doesn't have an animal-assisted therapy dog. So dogs are now part of the treatment of patients. Uh, it's certainly not a threat. Hotels, uh, Kempton Hotels is a great national brand of hotels around the country. They have a special floor now for non-pet owners. <coughs> Excuse me, apologies. So there, we've reached a point where we have to carve out special room for people that don't have pets. Now, we wouldn't have thought of that 30 years ago. We would have laughed at that very idea. So essentially, your theory seems to be that pets are good drugs. And if you have, oh, the best. have a pet, um, it will make you feel good, just like the best drugs will make you feel good. And yeah. they don't leave a hangover, although they might leave a pile of something here and there that you might step on an occasion. <laughs> but... Uh, they are good drugs. They make you feel good. And, and you know, you talk about bringing them into a hospital. Um, I can't think of a better way, you know, to make somebody who's feeling pretty bad feel a little better than to have a pet that they could. Uh... Well, it, it's, it's such a great point. I mean, 
I call it the cheapest medicine at a time when the United States could use some good medicine. And one of the studies that, that got my attention, uh, I have you know four daughters and a son, so I, I think about an adolescent. Well, this studied adolescents that had cardio, cardiovascular surgery. So th- these are kids in trouble. These are kids having, you know, before they're 10, major heart surgery. And if they spent the prior hours to surgery with their dog, there would be proven less of a need for medications and pain meds after the surgery. The stress level was dropped going into, during the surgery, afterwards, such. So when that we're talking there about opioids, right? Right. So uh, who you, don't, you, you do not want to introduce an 8-year-old child to opioids if you don't have to. And, and I always thought that study was, was the most powerful study. The, other, the flip side of it is as compelling what I call the social capital of pets. It's not just that people individually feel better, enjoy life, uh, exercise more, are more relaxed around pets. Studies were done um, in Perth, Australia, on the western edge of Australia, San Diego, Portland, and Nashville. And they repeated the study again in Perth. And they were trying to determine what is it that makes a community work, a neighborhood work, feel safe and people more comfortable, they're less isolated, there's less fear, there's more trust. And they weren't trying to prove one thing or the other. They just wanted to see what ultimately was the strongest driving factor and it wasn't the churches and it wasn't schools and it, it wasn't was sports the, it wasn't it was the dog it was walkers <laughs> it, 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 was, it was people going to a park neighbors uh, who would never have spoken they would have actually yep. probably looked the other way not to be intruding on their neighbor as they walked down a sidewalk who stop and say what's her name how long have you had her what's she like to eat what's she like to play with and suddenly 15 minutes later they know each other. They know each um, other. We're going to have to take a quick break. Mark Cushing, founder and CEO of Animal Policy Group, author of The Pet Nation, and you, you have a pet, don't you? We will be right back. Welcome back. This is the Food Chain Radio Program. Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Today we're talking about pets, and we're talking about how the United States has really become transformed into a nation of pets. In fact, a pet nation. We're talking with Mark Cushing, who ought to know because that's uh, his work right now is, I guess, to be an advocate for the nation's pet and pet industry. Uh, Mark, we were talking a little bit about a couple of decades ago, but I'd like to take you back even further. Uh, And I was spent a good part of my early childhood on the grandparents' farm up in Montana. And it was the old kind of farm where it had a lot of animals. In fact, probably all of the animals that one typically associates with a farm lived on that farm, on the grandparents' farm. And uh, all of those animals were working animals, which is to say none of them were pets. They all had a job to do on the farm, and they all did that job. Um, And yet none of them were house pets. Somehow, we've lost that uh, working animal ethic (laughs) and have transformed our pets uh, into house pets. They live with us in our houses, and they sleep in beds, and they travel on airplanes with us. How did the nation go about making that transformation as someone who 
has an occasion to stand on top of the mountain and look down. And how did that happen? Well, it, it was really <clears throat> as simple as people seeing dogs and cats in the neighborhood and beginning to invite them inside back in the 60s and 70s, but also the media presenting mm -hmm. pets, both cartoon pets as well as live pets. And they were just fun. They were compelling. They were loyal. They were brave. They were helpful. They were always there. And, and, and so you began to have people just see pets around them and, and ask the simple question of their parents, can we have a dog? Can we get a puppy? Can we get a kitten? It, it's uh, it's almost as if pets, we see pets as being the way we would want us to be. Well, it, you know, it is and it isn't. I mean, I always, when people say pets are the new children, I tell them that that's an insult to pets. They have a much better deal than, than kids do, and they don't have a teenage phase. But two examples are great. Of course, horses used to be purely work animals. They were the transport vehicles for, for the world, and that changed. And suddenly, you know, nobody rides a horse to work anymore, for the most part, except the cowboy. Um, but cats are the great story. Cats came to the U.S. on ships from Europe, and they were sanitation workers, period. They had one job, kill and eat mice and rats so they don't eat the food on the ship. And when they got to the East Coast, and cities were built in, through the Midwest. For the first hundred years, cats were the sanitation workers for cities. They got rid of the, of the mice, the rats. And, and, then, and on the farm, happened. too. And on the farm, but what happened in cities at a scale that, that, that's staggering, it's as if one day all the cats got fired from their jobs. And they were, they were identified themselves as the new problem, the new rodents. And they were mass exterminated. Mass euthanasia cats, millions a year. Basically, animal control picked up stray cats and they put them to sleep, um, hopefully painlessly. But the point is, flash forward to 2021 and cats are royalty. I mean, I, I've never seen a group make a comeback like cats made. But it once it happened, and then the, the thing we haven't talked about yet, Michael, is the second half of the media story. What was that? Social media. When smartphones became ubiquitous. And you, everybody had one to some degree, not just a cell phone, but a smartphone, right? And social media happened. We became our own film producers, our own editors, our own directors. And what do you see in the morning? You might see someone's baby, maybe. You might see something funny from a TV show, but I guarantee you what you're going to see are videos of cats and dogs. And birds. And people, we just got, birds we and, just got one of those videos on the phone uh, and it's a f video of bird, of a pet bird. Well, chapter eight of my book is on, on other pets besides cats and dogs. So, yes, so, so people, so then what happened, you know, as people got more isolated in terms of on your laptop during the day, at home, on your smartphone, you know, the picture of six people having dinner together and they're all on their smartphone talking to somebody else. As we got more isolated, one of the tools in social media that connected you to people that became the dominant tool was what? videos and pictures of pets and people couldn't get enough of them so so that that was another factor and that's where millennials and gen z's took over because those kids grew up with social media it's second nature to them you know every parent and grandparent knows this and you can't figure out how to do something on your smartphone or your, or your laptop you just ask your child or grandchild 
and they've got it figured out in like 10 seconds. They get it. And pets are in the middle of it all. So it, it was, a, 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 if you will, a vast collection of individual episodes and factors and driving agents that converged. And then we began to push pets into spaces, as we talked about before, and places that were forbidden to pets, suddenly, where's, where's the no pets allowed sign? It's gone. There's still some places you can't go with pets. My view is the next 20 years, most of those will change, and pets will literally be everywhere. It seems you, you brought something up about the cats, cats being royalty. It seems to me that pets are royalty, the way we treat them. Yeah, I, if you think about it, they don't have they, they have to do very little for themselves. Um, we we pay attention to them all the time, and they uh, you know take talk, take a dog that likes to play fetch. My my little puppy Louie, he lives for two things. We live in the desert near Scottsdale, Arizona. He wants to chase lizards. That that that's what he would do full time if he could. If he never had to be inside. We have to be a little careful of coyotes and, and other animals here, but uh, um, he would chase lizards. But when he's indoors, it, it's it's fetch. Throw the ball, and I'll I'll chase it for hours. Please don't stop throwing it. Well, at some point you have to. But the point is, yes, they, they pretty much get to do what they want on their terms. We we pretend like we're in charge, but it, it, that's just a ruse. Deep down, we're staff, and happily so. And because they are royalty, they really are changing our, our economy, too. They're having a big impact on, on our commercial industries. We're at, here's where we are now. Five years ago, the whole pet industry and, or economy in the U.S. was about $75 billion, which is a lot, but not, you know, not a staggering number compared to other industries. In 2020, $110 billion, and Morgan Stanley... Uh, a very powerful investment bank that studies all these things every day, all day, predicts that by 2028, so seven or eight years from now, the pet economy will be knocking on the door of $300 billion. I can tell you that Wall Street and investment firms have flooded into the pet marketplace, particularly veterinary practices in the last three years, buying practices, consolidating them, giving uh, baby boomer veterinarians the opportunity to retire <laughs> with with a sale price they never could have dreamed of. And, and, it's, and, it's, and every day you're seeing that accelerate. And once that happens, you know, it's happened with technology, obviously, and, and uh, it's happened with artificial intelligence and so forth. Once, it, once something gets on fire, and you know it's not a fad, smart, smart, smartphones, excuse me, aren't a fad. Pets are not a fad. They're not going away. Millennials and Gen Zs, when they have kids, you think they're going to have fewer pets? No, that's not going to happen. In fact, during COVID, it wasn't just new pet owners trying out a puppy. It was millennials and Gen Zs saying, I think my, my dog needs a playmate. When I go back to work, I think he's going to want to have somebody in the house to play with. So it, it's just getting started, believe it or not, America. You may think, surely we can't, we're done with this or, or the We've reached the limit. No, no, we're just getting started, in my view. Well, as I opened the show, the numbers seem to be telling us that we're having more pets and fewer kids. 
And so looking down the road, you can see that's probably where the money's going to be in the future. You brought up the veterinary practices. And, you know, being a pet owner myself, <laughs> I know where the money goes there. And it seems to me like it's better to be a vet, vet than it is to be a, a family doctor, uh, given the extent the, you know, the, the regulations that are involved in people medicine don't seem to be quite so stringent in pet medicine. And so when you go to the pet doctor, you have to fork out a lot of cash. Well, it, it, doctor, human doctors make more money than veterinarians. That's always been the case. There are considerably fewer vet schools, 33 veterinary colleges in the U.S. versus 185 vet schools. So vets are doing much better. Starting salaries are better. Um, that's all good. And, 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 and your career path is much more secure. And as you're paying off student debt, that's important to know. But our challenge today, if you're a pet owner, and, and, and I'm sure you, you've seen this, there are exceptions to everything. But the basic rule today is there is an acute shortage of vets. You can't get in for an appointment. Uh, emergency clinics are now telling people they have to wait one to two days to get in for an emergency. Uh, um, we have a real crisis on our hands right now, and it's a combination of a shortage of vets and the surge in a pet population and pet owners that are millennials and Gen Zs. They want the same health care for their pet that they get for themselves, and that was 180 degrees different 30 years ago. There was no sense that, that a pet deserved the kind of medical care, the ongoing care, advice, guidance, and so forth. That a, that a person had. Uh, we've, we've changed our own expectations for ourselves, and it's no different for pets. And, and frankly, the industry wasn't ready for that. They did not know that was about to happen. And that signals a huge change in the economy of, of veterinarian industry. Now, how exactly does that industry work? I, un I understand that it is undergoing a lot of consolidation along the way here. Yes, it, it, Lawyers, doctors, dentists, veterinarians are regulated at the state level, not the federal level. So every state has a, a medical board, a dental board, a veterinary board, and they regulate, if you will. They, they give you your license. You take the examinations you have to take. They oversee and make sure you're not a negligent practitioner, right? right. Um, and the regulate, it, it's, it's not a system dominated by federal insurance or federal Medicare-type payments. So you're right. You, you basically pay cash. There are pet insurance companies. They're now doing much better, but they still only capture about four, four, that's not 40, just the number, 4% of all pets in this country. So most pet uh, health care is a cash uh, non-insurance activity. Um, but it's a, uh, again, the volume of demand is such that it's really put pressure on a system that just doesn't have enough people. It doesn't have enough nurses or technicians. It doesn't have enough veterinarians, and you can't change that quickly. That, that's one of the challenges I work on every day. And then what about the consolidation? We're in, um, you know. Yeah, yeah it's, you're seeing, you're seeing two-person practices get acquired with a group of two-person practices to make 10 hospitals. Um, there's now probably between 75 and 100 groups in the country that do that. You still have the highest percentage of practices are individually owned. Um, 
on the general practice side, that you're, what you think of as your day-to-day vet. Uh, on the specialty side, where we have hospitals like Blue Pearl Hospital, who's a client of mine in Manhattan and New York, they have close to 50 doctors. So you, people can't even picture that. Specialists, the same exact specialties you have in human medicine, we have in veterinary medicine. That's been a change, and that's the most consolidated of all veterinary practices. And there's there's really three leaders, um, four leaders, I guess you'd probably say, in the country that have the lion's share of those practices. And that's that that's more consolidated. But those are also expensive to outfit. The technology, as you would imagine, is is much more expensive and extensive. Um, and uh, but it's what people want. People people want they want a urologist for their dog. They don't just want a general practitioner if there's a special problem. Um, they want a kidney specialist. They want an orthopedic surgeon to deal with the re- golden retrievers' hind leg issues, the same as they would for themselves. You know, one would suspect that um, if you're an apartment owner or a condominium owner in New York City and you have a pet, uh, you're probably willing to fork out a lot of money to make sure that that pet gets the best treatment available. And I suspect it would cost a lot of money in New York just to uh, operate a a, uh, vet hospital. So if you take Fufu into the vet at a uh, New York City, you're probably looking at some money there. Well, my brother and his wife uh, don't have kids. They live in New York. They had a Shih Tzu named Bella that was the the joy of their life, and she just passed away. At one point, she had seven seven specialists at Blue Pearl, the, the, the hospital I mentioned. Um, it is interesting you pick you take New York. Um, what's changed dramatically, even in less than ten years, apartment developers. Apartment owners have learned one thing. If you want to rent to a millennial or a Gen Z, you better be pet friendly. And 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. The biggest problem with pet ownership was, I can't have a pet in my apartment. What am I going to do? And and now, particularly anything new, anything constructed, I'd say since 2015, uh, odds are, and I mean high odds, it's going to be pet friendly. And that's changed dramatically. But you're also seeing at the other end of the demographic, nursing homes being pressured. And I'm glad they are. Why would you not let somebody have a pet in the last 10 years of their life when they probably need companionship more than ever? And we know how to take care of pets. So the idea that, oh my God, they'll mess up everything. They don't. If they did, nobody'd have a pet. Nobody'd have a dog or cat if your house was in total chaos. And what a joy it would be to have a pet in in a nursing home. Folks, this is a Food Chain Radio program. Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Hitting What. We're with Mark Cushing, who is the founder and CEO of Animal Policy Group and the author of Pet Nation. And we have you, too. And you have a pet. I know you do. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is the Food Chain Radio Program. Michael Olson, we're talking pets, and we're talking about how pets essentially have taken over the world, and um, they've taken over us, have they not? Uh, And I think of myself, they've taken over me. Um, I walk the dogs every evening, and, and as Mark was saying earlier, in the walking, I get to meet people. And it's always the people... Um, and they're dogs, but when you look at it, it's really the dogs pulling the people around. And it's, it's in that way, 
I, I have come to think that the animals have taken us over. What do you think, Mark? Well, they still need our help, okay? So they, they, they put up with us because uh, food doesn't show up <laughs> and litter boxes for cats and dogs don't get let outside on their own. So it's a good partnership. I, I like that word partnership better, but it's uh, anybody that thinks pets work for us uh, doesn't have a pet. Um, <clears throat> they've got a say in everything. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your work as an advocate for pets and as an advocate for the industry, um, it's hard for us to really comprehend the extent of the industry. Can, can you kind of paint a picture of what the pet industry looks like for us? Well, you have, you have healthcare, which are veterinarians, and there's usually three types of pro- professionals or, or staff inside of a veterinary hospital. There's the, the veterinarian who's the doctor, uh, you know, who's received a doctoral degree and passed a, a national board license. There's vet techs, which are really vet nurses. Uh, they don't call them nurses because the Human Nursing Association, believe it or not, has said that they'll sue and they'll lobby and they'll do whatever they can to stop anybody from calling themselves a nurse besides themselves, which is silly, but it's the way it is. So vet techs are like nurses. And then you have veterinary assistants, which are, are often people that, May not have uh, vet techs, by the way, have a two-year degree typically from a community college and take a national board exam, and then you have vet assistants. So that's the people in the office. Then you have medications. So all of the big pharmaceutical companies that that do the R and D and create the medications and pills and uh, all the, the the medication treatments that we need, they either have animal health divisions or they've spun them off as separate companies. So you have pharmaceutical, like you you would think, and then you have the nutrition, and those are pet food companies. And those range now, like human food, from big conglomerates to small niche, you know, uh, very sensitive, very specific types of diets. Then you have the big industry, American Pet Products Association, uh, all their members, and Steve King's their uh, CEO and good friend of mine, and there are all the things we buy for our pets. And some of those things are utilitarian, a bowl for water, simple as simple as that, to Halloween costumes, to you name it, toys. You can't have enough toys for a pet, right? You can't, dog can't have enough things to chew. Cats can't chase enough things. So um, that's kind of the anchor of it. Then you have behind it diagnostic companies that do all the diagnostics on blood and other samples that come from your pet to decide what the problem may or may not be. Um, And you have specialty pet care services companies, dog daycare, dog boarding, uh, retail pet stores like PetSmart, who I work with. You have Chewy, the online company. So it's, in many ways, the pet economy mirrors the human economy in terms of things we want for ourselves. Increasingly, those things we want for our pets created differently. They look different, but it's essentially an amenity or, or a, something that's necessary to kind of get through the day-to-day life. And don't let me forget, you know, fleece dog beds and, and kitty beds. Even though pets sleep on top of our beds, they all have their own special bed that they look at and maybe spend an hour a day on. Um, and then you have pet insurance companies. And so you, you kind of go on and on. But if you, if you look at it, it 
it's it's a picture of the human uh, amenities and accessories economy designed for pets. And there also seems to be a very interesting conflict evolving over the last decade or so with respect to um, how we see our pets and how we see animal agriculture. Um, and I, th I think a lot of young people especially are looking at animal agriculture and demanding that animal agriculture I can I don't know treat treat their animals like their pets as if they were pets. Any thoughts about well, that? Well, yeah, I mean it's I do some work in that field. It, it, it's more it's less that they want them treated like pets. It's more that they want well some people want, you know, food animals to be set free. They, you know, there there you know, there are people that are that are not just personal vegans or vegetarians, but they they would like to see it illegal to consume meat from an animal okay that's not a majority i don't see that happening anytime soon if ever um, so what they want is the conditions in which the animals are raised to be more humane they want room for a pig a veal calf a chicken to turn around 360 degrees to move to not be restrained in such a manner that you spend your entire life just standing until you're consumed, you know, that, so th there's, there's a strong movement there. It's a, uh, um, it's, it's not, not a, an easy issue, but there's tremendous support for regulations. The industry's negotiating that, trying to figure out what will work to allow them still to create a sustainable food supply. So that, you know, that, that fight and that process uh, is complicated, but I wouldn't quite call it treating them like pets. I guess I, I, I wouldn't use that word in that case. Okay. And what happens when these two interests, you know, animal agriculture and um, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, for example, what happens when they meet and contend in Washington, D.C.? Well, it's, uh, you know, two of the most powerful nonprofit advocacy groups in the country are in the animal space. One's called the Humane Society, United States, HSUS. One's called ASPCA, uh, American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. It goes back to the 1800s, uh, the latter does. They both raise about $175 million a year and spend a good deal of that on politics, you know, on lobbying, on messaging, and, and uh, both at the federal and state level. So um, in the in the pet world, nobody spends anywhere near that kind of money compared to those two organizations. No one does. No company does. In the in the food animal side, you know the the, the cattle industry, the poultry industry, the pork industry. You know they they have big budgets as you would expect. But it, it's a fair fight. I mean, it's not like people advocating for change uh, are, are begging for money and don't have any. Uh, it's 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 well funded on both sides, and so you have lobbying, as as we know, lobbying in, in every industry. The pet world's really not, not much different. So the, the people who are giving money to the um, ethical treatment organizations would seem to be pet people, correct? Some are, yeah. Some are, or some it's just an ideology that they have. 
they may or may not love pets. They just have a view that, you know, you shouldn't consume an animal. Um, the most extreme group that people may know is PETA, P-E-T-A, yeah. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And PETA has some very, you know, they, they successfully led the campaign, which has almost removed fur coats from the American uh, uh, fashion world. But they also, their view is that pets are slaves and slavery is illegal, so we shouldn't be allowed to have pets. Now, they don't promote that view too often and too publicly, but it's on their website. That's their actual position. I'm familiar with their position. And now, if you, I think if you talk to a dog or a cat and say, how'd you like to be let free in a forest tomorrow, they'd say, uh, I'd be happy to, I'd be surprised if I made it until noon without a coyote or, or some other creature, you know, right. uh, having a better of it. So, but, but, so you can't easily say PETA is driven by love of pets because in many ways they don't want people to have pets. They think pets, that's it, a denigration, that, that's an enslavery of uh, of the animal so it, 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 there's layers and layers of people's views about pets and, and i've been lucky to make a good living and have a really interesting profession navigating that universe which is something i do every day mm -hmm. well it would al almost seem like like uh, organizations like PETA don't want there to be any animals because <laughs> if people if people don't have that interaction with animals what would happen to animals there would there would be far yeah. fewer animals well i'll tell you what there wouldn't be there wouldn't be any shih tzus uh standard poodles i mean there may be a farm animal going back to the you know the, the time you were referring to you know on a sure. ranch in montana but but in truth their view and, and that's always the issue is can you with a straight face make the argument that that it's better for the for the dogs and cats of the world if we reduce their population by 90% and there's fewer of them and they live all day fearful and hiding and just trying to escape a larger predator. Um, and, and trust me, there's going to be nothing that, that changes the wiring of a coyote. Last evening, uh, my wife and I were awakened twice at midnight and at three in the morning from howling coyotes probably 50 feet from our house because in the desert you have areas you know and they're just roaming as a pack and they probably found bunny rabbits this time maybe they, you know but the point is you, you go into a lot of neighborhood parks in this country doesn't matter the size of the city and you'll see on on telephone poles posters particularly of cats missing you know cats people don't let cats outside because of predators. So, so that world that PETA envisions, it, it's not a fuzzy, warm, fun world. It's a, it's a cold, harsh, you know, hide, hide or be killed in the universe. So I, I don't think it improves a lot of dogs and cats. Well, uh, no, however, it would seem to get nice rid of them. Theory. You know, it, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, I can't see how there would be any animals left. I mean, what, if we if we are not allowed to have a relationship with animals, um, it seems to me like there would be no animals. I don't know. And the other part of their argument that uh, animals are our slaves, I don't know. You, if you look at somebody walking down the street uh, with a dog on a leash, 
that leash has two ends. And yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure no. who's who's the slave here when it gets right down to it, because it seems oh, like okay. we're the slave. Oh, yeah. No, that's 100 percent. I mean, 100 percent. That's the case. So it's it. Uh, listen, the pet economy, the, the enjoyment of pets, the human animal bond is it's not about to wrap up. It's just getting its tailwind for a long, long. I can't see any end to it. And there shouldn't be. Pets make people feel better. By the way, the same oxytocin and cortisol exchange that we experience, pets experience. So it's not a one-way street. So pets make people better. They make people healthier. They make communities work better. They make people feel safer and 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 feel less isolated. What's my recommendation? We need more pets. We shouldn't have a law. I'm I'm not recommending a law that requires people to have pets, but we need more pets. I know our times. Uh, I've, I've got to head to an airport shortly. But yeah, uh, we just we, can, we have we about can, uh, two minutes left. And I was going to ask you, with the in in these two minutes, um, Mark Cushing, you're the person who's really has the has us focused on this industry. Where do you think this industry is going? The industry of pets, and where should we bet our money? Well, I, th- I think you're going to see more and more pets that aren't cats and dogs, beca- particularly because we have a shortage of dogs. So you're going to see people struggle to find the dog they want. Um, and you, you may have people willing to try birds or fish or, or reptiles and so forth. <clears throat> and they're a niche, but they're, they're, there are a lot, of, a lot of families that have them. I think you're going to see attention paid to three shortages, veterinarians, veterinary nurses or technicians, and dogs. Those shortages have to be addressed. That's what I spend most of my professional time working on. Those shortages must be addressed. We can't, we won't enjoy what we've been enjoying at the level we'd like, and particularly the next generation, if we're in a chronic acute shortage environment. We don't ever want dogs to become luxury items. There's parts of the country right now where a golden doodle puppy is $5,000. That's a luxury item. And, and so uh, shelter prices and adoption fees have gone up just because of scarcity. And the law of supply and demand applies to dogs as it applies to, to anything else in the world. So I think I think we have a great future ahead, but, but shortages have to be addressed. You don't want a cloud always hanging over an industry. And right now a cloud's formed. And, it, and it's it's not a friendly cloud, which is you're going to have a hard time seeing a vet. If you have an emergency, you may not get in right away, and you may it may be challenging. You may have to wait a couple of years to get the dog you want. The price tag is going to surprise you. That that's that's just a fact. Are there exceptions? Yes, I can hear your listeners thinking, well, well my shelter's got too many dogs. Most shelters don't have that issue anymore. I'll just tell you that. So, um, so, so there you are. There you are, but I've enjoyed our great question. Mark, Mark Cushing, really... founder and CEO of Animal Policy Group and the author of Pet Nation. Thank you so much for joining us. And catch that airplane and count how many pets are under the seat for me, okay? <laughs> I'll need both hands, I'm sure. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the talk. <laughs> you Bye-bye. Bet. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at MetroFarm.com for a listen. 
now go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live. <laughs>